Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Leo Valdez, and I am your host for today's episode on the LGBTQ Studies channel on the New Books Network. Today, I'm with Hugh Ryan, a writer, curator, and LGBTQ historian based in New York City. His first book, When Brooklyn Was Queer, won a 2020 New York City Book Award and was a New York Times editor's choice in 2019. Today, we will be discussing his second book, The Women's House of Detention, A Queer History of a Forgotten Prison. Hugh, thank you for being here with me today. Thank you for having me, Leo. I'm really excited. Awesome. I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. Sure thing. Well, like you said, I'm a historian, curator, and author, uh, but it was a slow road to get myself there. I didn't really start writing and doing queer history in the way that I do it now until I was in my 30s. Before that, I had been a social worker, a travel writer. I wrote kids' books under a variety of ghost names. Uh, I kind of bounced all over the place. So this has been kind of the excitement of my last 15 years, bringing this queer history to the page. It's something I loved my whole life, but only in the last, you know, like I said, decade has it been something I could possibly do as a career. So I'm really excited to get to talk to the new book network about all of this. That's amazing. That's amazing. Yes, you've you seem you're a prolific writer with nine young adult novels under your belt. <laughs> and it's yeah, it's an inspirational path that you've taken for sure. Well, inspirational and roundabout. <laughs> <laughs> well, I feel that's the queer way, you know. Very true. Yeah, for sure. So uh, first question I wanted to ask is just how you learned about the House of Detention and how you got interested in researching it and how you decided to write the book in the first place. You know, it's funny. For a place that I knew so little about when I started this book, when my eyes kind of trained into it, it suddenly was everywhere. But what started me there was actually my first book, When Brooklyn Was Queer, where two of the folks that I wrote about, Mabel Hampton and someone who I did not know their first name when I wrote that book, but I later discovered they were named Big Cliff Trondle. Those two folks in my first book went from Brooklyn 
into Manhattan and eventually into the House of Detention or the women's court that was connected to it. And so I started to get aware of its existence in that moment. And I was already thinking about prisons as places that created queer records, right, that we could find people who were arrested and maybe find out more about their lives. So prisons were on my mind generally, and the House of D was sort of tangentially on my mind. But then when I started thinking about what I wanted to write about next and was trying to see how to move the story forward of New York City's queer history and and sort of what queer history in America is and to look more at the mid-20th century, I started finding all of these references to the House of D. The first and probably the most important one was uh, activist Jay Tool, who is a sort of prime person in the book, is one of my narrators, one of the folks I've interviewed over and over again. She was formerly incarcerated in the House of D at one point, and she leads tours of the West Village to educate young people about the House of D because she felt that it, it and the folks who passed through it, like her, were in danger of being forgotten. And when she told me about everything that the prison was for her, both how awful it was, but also how it was a center of queer life in its own way, I began to really start to think about prisons differently, not just as recorders of information about queer people, but as creators of queer life and queer culture. And so once Jay clued me into that, I started to really think about this as potentially my next project and really had my eyes open. And suddenly it was it was everywhere. It was in Joan Nessel. It was in Audre Lorde. Uh, it was in oral histories that I did. It was friends who I would talk to who lived in the village for decades mentioned it. You know, it was like I was hearing it all over again. And then I came across a study from the Williams Institute at the UCLA. And this was kind of the, the final um, nail in the coffin of the decision to write about this. They had found that 40% of folks currently incarcerated in women's prisons identified as LBTQ, 40%. And I was just shocked to hear that statistic. It just felt like a crisis of incarceration among queer women and trans men that we didn't talk about. And it felt so huge that it suddenly just felt like not only was I seeing all of these references in the past that felt like they pointed me to the House of D in this major way that wasn't being talked about, but now I was seeing these echoes in the present that were also not being talked about. And that's when I really began to feel like this had to be my next project. Mm, that makes so much sense. Um, I love how you talk about how prisons as a site of queer records, which you know many authors have 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 used or records from the carceral state to discuss queer history. But what you really do in your book, which I loved, was like place the jail at the center of queer cultural life, the creation of, of queer life. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Was it just happenstance that New York City built a prison in the heart of the queer world? Or was it, you know, the result of a type of co-creation? How, how did that occur? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely the latter. It's definitely co-creation. And this is one of those things that I really had to learn about in doing this research. Grand Village already had a bohemian uh, reputation going back to the mid-1800s when I wrote about Walt Whitman partying there in bars. But it gets this major bohemian destination vibe in the late 19-teens and early 1920s. It becomes a slumming destination for tourists and for rich people and a place where during Prohibition you would go to see uh, shows at, you know, pansy bars uh, and other, you know, not gay bars. Um, and, and I was curious about that moment, right? Why does Greenwich Village become 
the queer destination. What was it about Greenwich Village? Because I knew from my research that Coney Island by that point already had uh, bars and bathhouses that were gay as, as we would think of them today. And yet it didn't develop institutions for queer women the way that Greenwich Village did, nor did it develop the reputation for being a queer location the way Greenwich Village did. And as I dug into the history of the prison, so the prison opens in 1932, construction starts in 1929. But it was there because in 1910, a place called the Women's Court was opened up at the exact same location, 10 Greenwich Avenue. And the Women's Court was a court for women arrested at night for prostitution or intoxication, these crimes against the public order for which men were never arrested. And the women's court was a place really where improperly feminine women were taken by the police throughout the 19-teens, the 20s, the 30s, into the 40s, uh, and then through the prison extended into the 60s and 70s. So at the exact moment where Greenwich Village starts to get this reputation as a place you come on a slumming tour to see wildlife, to see queer sexuality, to see these drag shows, to see strange people on the streets and see bohemians. It was also a place where women and trans men and non-binary people, though they were not using language generally at that time, were being brought by the cops for bucking the conventions of gender. Right. And those two things, I was like, well, they've got to be tied together. Right. How could they not be? But then I found that they were actually specifically tied together. The people who founded the women's court very much intended it to be a tourist destination. They made flyers advertising that people could come and visit. They made sure that it had seats that were raked like a stadium or an auditorium so that everyone had a good view. And the uh, officials in the the uh, court system actually said that the most valuable part of the women's court was showing other people a procession of poor women tied to a life of sin. It was intended to be a tourist destination. And that starts a decade before we get this general reputation for the neighborhood as a tourist destination. In a very real way, these arrested, largely queer people were presented to the city as an entertainment, an instructional entertainment, right? A moral tale that people came to watch because it was free, because every night there were new stars in this theater, and because it was advertised by the court system itself to get them to come. So in that way, the court system starts to create the Greenwich Village that we know as this queer destination. And then once the prisons open and we go past, you know, the 1930s and into World War II and then into 1950s, you know, kind of the most conservative moment in American history, at least in modern American history, the prison becomes a unique vector for queer community. Because queer bars could be raided, police patrolled the streets, as did homophobes, and you weren't even safe in your private residence from getting arrested. But no one could shut down the queer people in the prison because the government was the one bringing them there. So the court system creates the village as a queer destination, as a place to come see queer people, so as a destination generally. And then at the time when the government is repressing most sites of queer community, it cannot repress the prison because it is creating it. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. When I when I read that about the women's court and about people coming and, and sitting in the audience, you know, for lack of a better word, it was just horrible. You know, people, 
using the suffering of others as a spectacle and as a form of entertainment. It it really drove home, you know, those connections there, not just slumming in terms of, you know, a site of tourism, but, you know, act, the actual women's court and seeing people come in and be tried and everything that was remarkable. Yeah, it's moral tourism, really. And it still continues to this day. I mean, there are still places. I mean, think about how many people have been watching the Amber Heard Johnny Depp trials, right? We still treat trials as a kind of entertainment. That's true. That's very true. Yeah. So building off of that, you talking about the prison, you know, starting and be, being found in 1929 and closing in 1974. That's quite a tumultuous period in U.S. history. Um, and also when I was reading your book, you know, I thought a lot about um, uh uh, boots of leather, slipper, slippers of gold, and you know because that book also talked about lesbian life and the kind of um, lumpen as you as you refer to them in the book that were the backbone you know of of gay liberation. So I was wondering how you see your book changing the way we think about queer history and you calling the jail a vector, you know, the the site of, of queer culture and cultural building, because, you know, as you say, you can't shut down this prison, like you can't a bar, you know, so how, how do you think that putting a jail in the center of, of queer history changes our perception of the past? Well, I hope it does it in a couple of ways. One is that I think that by putting the jail at the center of queer history, it starts to politicize this history in different ways, right? When we have Stonewall as the heart of it, which is still, you know, an important moment, and the jail is actually 500 feet from the Stonewall Inn. The folks inside rioted during the Stonewall riots, right? They participated. When we just see the bar as the center of that history, it gives us a very narrow slice, a very particular set of people who were there, a very particular set of issues. When we start to bring in the prison, we see a much wider scope of what it means to be punished by the state for being queer. Most of the folks I write about weren't arrested because they were queer. There was no law on the book saying you're a lesbian, we're bringing you to jail, but rather their gender nonconformity ensured often a life of poverty. That poverty meant that they couldn't um, feed themselves because they were gender nonconforming and seen as women. They weren't seen as eligible for the only jobs women were thought to be able to have, wife, maid, mother, for all those things, you needed to be feminine, right? So in these ways, the people in the prison were being punished for being queer. And when we center that kind of punishment, as opposed to this specific raid on a gay bar that was mostly frequented by gay white men, we just get a really different scope to the story. But I also think there's another important way in which putting this prison at the center of this history is different or perhaps instructive in different ways. And for this, I always look to Alan Barabay's Coming Out Under Fire, which is his book about how during World War II, many people in the armed services, particularly men, but people in general, learned about homosexual identity through the army informing them that that's who they were. It structures their desires, right? It, it teaches them what it means to be a person who desires the way that they desire. The prison and the court system does that for women and trans men starting much earlier, at least as early as the opening of the women's court in New York City in 1910. Uh, but I, I would say even before that, in the earliest stories of the folks I see who passed through the House of D, 
they understood their desires, they understood their gender identity, but they didn't necessarily understand that they were quote unquote homosexuals, that this was a negative thing, that it was about sexual desire, that it was disconnected from the body and lived entirely in the mind, right? If we look at the ways in which prisons both punished people and informed people about what their gender identity and their desires meant, it can actually show us how we transition America from a 19th century uh, queer culture in which there's an idea of kind of a third sex model, right? Homosexuality doesn't really exist. Instead, all recognized queer people are seen as folks who violate gender norms and are probably physically different as well. They're a third sex. As we incarcerate more and more of those people, the court system begins to differentiate out who they are through eugenic science, which is the same way that it starts to differentiate out different kinds of prisoners, right? So we get fingerprinting and Bertillon measurements and all of these ways of tracking the biologically born bad categories of various criminals. That system is the same system that gets applied to queer people and particularly queer women and trans men and teaches them who they are. So I think that when we put the court at the center of this history, it helps us to understand in a really granular way how we move from a 19th century model of sexuality and gender identity to a 20th century model. Wow, that's really fascinating, Hugh. <laughs> Thank you for explaining that. Um, that That's really interesting. And I think, you know, this speaks to my next question, which is about two questions. It's a two-part question. First, building off of what you just said, thinking about how what you just said informs our understanding of trans history and our growing understanding of trans history. So I, that's the first question. And the second part to that is in the first sentence of your book, you, you have a great quote, and I'll read it. And you say, I use the word queer in a materialist rather than identity-based way to refer to the broad collection of people whose sex sexual and gender expressions were not normative in their time. I think maybe both of those are related. But first, you know, what you said, moving from a 19th century model to a 20th century model and the prison being the structuring element there, how does that relate to, to trans history of which you are in deep conversation in your book? I mean, I think it relates very directly because a lot of times I think people get caught up in this argument when we go back before World War II of like, was this person really gay or was this person really trans? You know, as though there is an answer, which I <laughs> don't think in many cases there are. I think they dealt with a different system that informed how they thought about themselves differently. And we need to be taught an entirely new system. As the system is being taught, it's very much focused on a rejection of this 19th century system, which is all about gender. Instead, we're moving into a very homosexual system in the 20th century. And all of these things, these practices that in previous eras would have been seen as having to do with your body and gender become signifiers of invisible homosexuality. So gender transgression stops being a discrete phenomenon and becomes an indicator of hidden homosexuality. Uh, Professor Jen Mannion writes about this really brilliantly in their work on female husbands and early prisons in America. Uh, I think that their analysis is, is really just like spot on. Um, but that, that moment is so important, right? Because that then dictates 
the future of queer studies for most of the 20th century. I mean, the folks who I loved and learned from, and I think are, are major and important scholars in this work in the 20th century, often you'll, you'll read their work and you'll be presented with someone who says, I grew up thinking of myself as a girl, I always wanted to be a woman. I express my sexuality in these ways. I express my gender in these ways. And it will be simply rendered as he is a homosexual, right? And you're like, uh, <laughs> I get where they're coming from. But they had stopped being able to see gender and transgender identities, or, or maybe they didn't even see them emerge yet, right? Because they were so busy rejecting this 19th century invert model. So... In that sense, I think that what this system change sets up for queer studies is an invisibilization of trans people and trans desires and trans identities in this early formative period when we're doing the first gay histories, which then leave those of us who grew up in reading those histories with a skewed idea about transgender history, right? Because we've been taught to see all of these things as indicators of hidden homosexuality. And in fact, the people expressing them were often taught those same exact things as well. And that's one of the hard things going into the second part of your question about why I talk about materialist versus uh, identitarian takes on history. If you can teach someone that their identity is something different and then they take it up and believe it, what does that say about identity? as a permanent basis from which to do history. For me, it says that it's a very weak one because it could change at any moment. And in fact, someone's expression of identity may not in any given circumstance be true because they might feel pressured to express something that isn't true, or it may change 10 years later. And so when I talk about doing materialist history, I am using the word queer to talk about a non-normative sex or gender practice in the cultural context in which it happens. I am talking about people who undertake those activities or express those desires as queer. But I'm not going to say that that specifically means their identity with this, that, or the other very often. Sometimes with specific cases, I will say, we can see from all of this evidence, it seems like this person thinks of themselves the way a trans man today might think of themselves, or as a bisexual woman might think of themselves. But I really want to focus on behaviors, expressive modes of speech, and other quantifiable things, not internal identity, which is so shifting and hard to specify. And that was something I really learned looking at the work of Jules Gill-Peterson, who I think is so good on this. And her histories of the transgender child, I think, is just brilliant. Totally agreed. Agreed with both of those shout outs. Jules Gill-Peterson, history of the transgender child and Jen Mannion, female husbands. Absolutely. That This is um, a great conversation. And I, I loved your answers. And you just r remind me how how we're in some ways, I guess, relearning maybe to see gender as social primarily and and even identity as social. And, and that makes sense, you know, in terms of it changing. And I wonder, too, you know, I'm just throwing this thought out there, but um, just how maybe one of the flaws of our our of our communities, LGBT, the LGBT community is perhaps this this need to find or to ground ourselves in an innate understanding of ourselves or of our or of our identities or orientations. And, and that sometimes gets us in trouble, um, both in the present and as we look for 
people like us in the past. Go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say absolutely, because I think so often that immediately goes back to biology in some way, right? And uh, sort of like, I can't help it, so therefore I deserve rights approach. And I, I don't like that premise, right? I don't think I deserve rights for things that I cannot help being. I deserve rights because what I am is what I choose to be, and no one else has a say in that, so long as I'm not hurting someone else. Uh, so I, I agree. I think it is a, it leaves us in a weak position very often. Mm, absolutely. Yes. So... Talking more about the trans masculine people in your book, like Big Cliff um, and others, I, I, there's this, there's this sometimes um, assumption that I've seen held that trans masculine people do not are not the subjects of physical violence in terms of gender nonconformity because pants are, you know, you can move around with pants more than you can address. Now, what was Taking this question, did you what kind of violence, if any, but I know that they did because I read the book, but what kind of violence did transmasculine people experience? Um, and how did they show up in the archive? And and what did you learn, I guess, throughout your research that maybe surprised you? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Uh, trans men and transmasculine folks faced violence. Uh, it was different kinds of violence in different periods. One thing that gets repeated uh, over and over again is pre-World War II, you don't see as much of the kind of street level um, homophobia and transphobia that's about assaulting a random stranger. You see a lot more people who are in some way in community with people getting assaulted. So by family, by friends, by people they may be having sex with or working with. So we see these transmasculine figures who have a place in community, but are also uh, abused by it. So often by the family, really, you see this a lot, uh, that, that young trans men in these records or transmasculine folks uh, find immediately that they become a source of um, constant focus for their family. Their behavior is always wrong. It is always being punished. And then they're being driven to be truant, say, or to act out or to run away. And all of those things are things that your guardians could have you put in jail without even a trial, right? A wayward child, the first waywardism laws in New York State only applied to young women and girls. And they applied to people up to the age of 21. And they made it possible for your guardian to place you in prison without ever having you tried. All they had to do was say that you were wayward, right? So we see these kinds of violence, this um, attempt to reconfigure our carceral system, which had previously been aimed at the violent antisocial acts of white men into a form of social control for women and trans men who are improperly feminine. So the violence of the family trying to force femininity on children they perceive as female in order that they can grow up to be morally correct and economically prosperous. Because again, someone who's assigned female at birth only has a couple of jobs available to them, wife, maid, and mother. And you need to be female for all of those. You need to be feminine. So it's a moral and an economic proposition to try and force these children to be feminine. And as women broadly writ as a social category move more into the public sphere post-Civil War, that's when we get a prison structure that suddenly is focusing on them because they are moving into the public sphere out of the grasp of the family. And when that happens, that violent enforcement of femininity has to be given to a state agency and it ends up in the carceral system. Hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you. 
it it also it makes me think and it reminds me of just how rigorous your book is and i know i said this at the start of our conversation um before the interview started but you're you just are like a detective basically i mean reading your footnotes is is amazing and also this this large archive that you draw on the 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 wpa which is short for women's what, what uh, remind me women's again prison association women's prison association and so it can you talk a little bit about your archive and specifically sometimes i've gotten the question once uh when i've done a presentation at a conference i was asked i was asked how do you find trans people in in how do you find this work leo how how did you is it just oral history uh with with a with an italicized just there so your your book does you did do some oral histories with jay tool and and um crooks who was the the girlfriend of afeni shakur and i have a question about that later of course but um can you talk about your archive and the wpa how you found it number one and and also just um yeah how that unraveled it was, I would say the first full year of this work was finding the archives that I would be using because I didn't want to tell this story from the point of view of the carceral system because uh, prisons create a lot of data, like very specific numbers that treat people like fungible objects that have no specificity, no life story, no humanity. Uh, so that data is not very good for producing story or narrative or things that we can learn from. But it's also really shittily kept, right? It's bad record keeping. The, the, the data produced by prisons is inevitably bad because it's always being produced for one of two reasons, either to justify the people they have incarcerated or to ask for more money, right? And, and both of those things are not neutral records. No record is neutral, but those biases were inimical to the work that I was trying to produce. So I knew I couldn't just rely on governmental records. I had to find the stories, ideas, thoughts, and experiences of these women and trans men as close as I could to in their own words. I tried early LGBT organizational files like the Mattachine Society and the Daughters of Beliefs, uh, the Society for Human Rights. I didn't really find much about the House of D. I found a little bit about prisons occasionally or uh, prison pen pals sometimes, and a little bit about laws, but then only really specifically around like sodomy laws and raids on gay bars, right? Nothing that was sort of broader than that. Next, I tried looking at the LGBTQ periodicals, especially the earliest ones that had come out. But again, it was very similar. Nothing really about the House of D until late 60s, early 70s, when we start to see all these liberationist papers coming out. In that moment, you start to get more records. But for the earliest years, the 30s and the 40s, I mean, really not very much. Then I tried looking at the collections of famous LGBTQ people from the right period and the right time, hoping there'd be some overlap. There's a tiny bit there, but not much. So that took about a year. And I started to think that I was not going to be able to write this book. And I actually sat down to think about other historians and how they do this work, how they look at limited or non-existent archives. And I was reading Sadia Hartman's uh, brilliant book, Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiments. And she talks about the importance of imagination, both imagination in working around the limits of the archive to imagine what we cannot know, what is not captured, but also to imagine our lives of our subjects and the people we want to write about to understand where they might show up in the archive. And that's why I was thinking about how you end up in the archive, right? And it's one of two ways. Either you have power, and so people ask you questions and then they publish them in the newspaper, or you write your own books, or you establish a 
professorship at NYU, or you own your own home and you have a children and descendants who want to take care of you and they preserve your materials. In all these ways, you enter the public record on your own terms. The rest of us enter the public record because someone else has power over us. And that was largely going to be the case for the people I was looking at. But I needed to find positions in which those people in power were going to keep the kinds of records I was interested in. The women and trans men's thoughts, experiences, ideas. I needed to get as close as I could. And that's when I hit on social workers. I had previously worked as a kind of youth worker, social worker in New York City. So I knew about the kinds of records we were keeping because I knew that criminality, queerness, and economic prosperity were all entangled with each other as ideas at this time, I was pretty certain that social workers working with formerly incarcerated people were going to be talking about queer things. I wasn't sure how it would be written. I wasn't sure if it would be coded or open. I wasn't sure what language they would use, but I thought it would be in there somewhere. So the Women's Prison Association, still around today, great organization. They are the first freestanding organization working with formerly incarcerated women in the country. They were founded in the mid-1800s. And in the 1980s, they gave 140 boxes of case files to the New York Public Library. And no one had ever looked at them. Because when they were given, they were trying to protect the identities of many of the people in those files who could have still been alive. So they said, if any file is less than 70 years old, you need to get specific permission from the WPA to look at it. The files, when they were donated, were in alphabetical, not chronological order. So the library, which does permissions at a box level, assumed there was at least one file less than 70 years old in every box and made every box off limits to researchers who had not gotten specific permission from the WPA. So no one ever looked. These files have been sitting, right? I, I it. The subtitle of my book is about a forgotten history, and in many ways, this history has been forgotten. But I am writing about a prison in the heart of Greenwich Village in the 20th century using an archive that has sat in the New York Public Library since the 1980s, right? So the fact that it took me this long and this much work to find it says something about how well hidden all of this stuff is, but also how present it is and how right there in some ways it is too, I think tells us something else. Anyway, I finally got the access. I wrote to the WPA and they said, of course you can look at these files. We don't think you're going to find anything in the 30s and 40s. We don't think we were talking about queer issues, but like, please, by all means, go ahead. And within two hours of looking in the first box, I had found hundreds of pages about queer people. Uh, it was it was revelatory. Uh, and Big Cliff Trondle, who we mentioned earlier, I found I'd, I'd found part of his life story up through like 1917 when I was writing my first book, and I found the rest of his life story in these files. It was it was an incredible moment. I found hundreds of queer people in these files, and I never even made it through all of them because you know this pandemic happened, <laughs> got in the way. Right. Wow, that's absolutely incredible, Hugh. That's incredible. I'm so glad that you were so persistent in in looking for records for the House of D and that you finally found them because they are remarkable records. I mean, there's so much detail and there are a lot of people who speak with their own words. There, you know, there are some moments where people say, I've always felt like a boy. This is my name. And in fact, in one in one case, they they refuse to give the judge their birth name. Right. 
I don't know if you know who I'm talking about because yeah, you know, Big Cliff, Cliff Trondle. Oh, he refused Cliff, to give right. me first name. He refused to change into a dress. He refused uh, over and over again. He kept asking. To, uh, he wanted to write to Woodrow Wilson to request the ability to be addressed under the gender he thought he should be. You know, it, it was incredible to watch these people uh, fight back and then to capture it in their own words. To have these files have like love letters that they had written, college transcripts, high school poetry. I mean, the stuff that you almost never see. It from people who aren't already famous. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's why that's one of the reasons that they're so incredible. So in terms of the other interesting archives that you used, you did some very interesting oral histories that you talk about in your last chapter, especially, and even in the uh, epilogue. And, and I think one of the ways that you used oral histories was to connect the Black power movement and the gay power movement together. Could you talk a little bit about those connections? Yeah, absolutely. When I was doing this research, one of the things that really struck me was that the prison was right next door to Stonewall. And that if you look at the accounts of women who were involved in the Stonewall riots, they over and over again point to the prison as a place where people rioted. That in fact, women on the inside set fire to their belongings and threw them out their windows while screaming, gay rights, gay rights, gay rights. So I knew that the prison was part of the story of Stonewall. Uh, as Jeffrey Masters, the, the great podcaster for Advocate, once said, it's like I turned the camera slightly and suddenly a whole new scene opens up. That's what it felt like. So I knew that these stories went together. And I knew from talking to some of the folks involved with Stonewall, like Jay Toole, uh, that part of the history of Stonewall that is so important that we have forgotten is how many people were there, the variety of folks who were involved. And so I started to look into the stories of folks like Martha Shelley and Rita Mae Brown, women who were active in the gay rights movement, who were on the ground of Stonewall at that time. And one of the first things I started to notice was that they formed the Gay Liberation Front in order to protest in support of the Black Panthers in the Women's House of Detention. And suddenly it was like, just like when I realized on the map that the prison and Stonewall were right next to each other, suddenly two timelines came together for me. And I realized that the Stonewall uprising happened at the exact same moment that two of the queer Black female leaders of the Panthers, Joan Byrd and Afini Shakur, were in the House of Detention. And suddenly I started to look at their experiences and put them into this conversation. And what I found immediately was that both of them were queer uh, and that Afini Shakur herself was very actively working to connect the gay liberation movement and the black power movement in part, as she said to some folks who were involved in the gay liberation front, because she saw queer people protesting the prison from her window. What she didn't mention there was that she'd also met her girlfriend in prison uh, and that it was with her girlfriend, Crooksy, that she was also pushing for more collaboration with gay liberation uh, and that she was herself getting involved in the queer community. Uh, I talked to Denise Oliver Vela, one of the founders of the Young Lords, and she said they used to go to lesbian bars together uh, in the village and that the Black Panthers provided uh, uh, defense for some of these lesbian bars so that folks wouldn't get hassled. I started to see all these connections. I saw that Crooksy was listed as the father on Tupac Shakur, Afini Shakur's son's birth certificate, right? And then I finally got to talk to Crooksy, and that was incredible. I had seen her mentioned in a footnote of a legal article about 
uh, centering women's rights in prisoners' rights litigation, because Crooksy had been involved in a very important prison uprising in Bedford Hills, the prison, women's prison right outside the city in the 1970s. It took maybe about two years of uh, speaking with her daughter before we were able to finally get in touch because Crooksy, uh, who unfortunately sadly passed uh, recently during the COVID epidemic. But up until then, she was like a like a powerhouse. She's always on the move, really hard to get a hold of. And we finally got to sit down and talk for a couple hours one Christmas. Uh, and it was, it was incredible. She told me all about their time in the prison. She told me about being uh, at the courthouse when the Panther 21 were found innocent, largely because of Afini Shakur's self-defense. She acted as her own lawyer and the lawyer for the Panther 21. And she's largely recognizes the person who got them free. All of this, Carol told me, or Crooksy told me, and Crooksy told me all about her experiences in Brooklyn before it was gentrified. Uh, and it was really incredible to get to hear this story because I think we know the story of the Gay Liberation Front some, to some degree, some of us, and we know the story of the Black Panther Party, again, to some degree, some of us, but the intersection of those two almost never gets talked about. And I think just like we talked about earlier, when we put the prison at the center of this history, what we start to see are the ways in which so many of these liberation movements are connected by the forces rallied against us and by the fact that those of us in these movements are the same people, right? The Black Panthers and the Gay Liberation Front are the same people at times. Of course, there's still homophobia and there is still racism and there's still transphobia in all of these movements, but the connections are real and worth exploring. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think your detective work is just remarkable. <laughs> and I'm so grateful that you've done all of that. And and yeah, even you mentioned that the the split between the Gay Liberation Front and the Gay Activist Alliance were over these issues of race. Yeah, over the and, Black and Panthers. Sexual. The Gay Activist yeah. Alliance did not want to support the Black Panthers in protest the prison. Yep. Wow. It's definitely something to reflect on and and keep reflecting on. I think there are a lot of scholars right now, too, looking at these intersections, and I think we'll continue to to learn more. And that'll certainly change how we look at at the past and at the linkages between these movements. So, Hugh, I have one final question about the book. Um... Uh, I just n- noticed and I really liked how during several moments of the book, you make an explicit connection to the present day. You talk about how you talk about the Supreme Court case, which said that transfers were punishment, but that they were still legal, for example, after the Attica riot. And and you make these you know explicit references to, to abolition as well. So why was it important for you to do that? Two reasons. One, because as I said earlier, I wanted so much of this book to come from the perspective of the people who were entangled in the criminal legal system, who were caught in the House of D. Uh, And what I saw in reading their experiences over and over and over again was the ways in which the system is unreformable, unredeemable, cannot be made better. Uh, That no matter what changes happen to it in the moment, uh, it always relapsed to cruelty and was usually bigger when it did. And so abolition emerged as the only framework that made sense to understand what I was seeing. Because a reform-minded sort of progressive or centrist Democrat mindset didn't make any sense. Uh, it seemed as though everyone, and I mean everyone, people in the prison, both the incarcerated people and the guards and the administration and the mayor, 
and the governor, everyone agreed the system was not working, targeting the wrong people, was causing more damage than it was fixing, uh, and yet nothing seemed to be done or doable. And it began to clue me in that I was not understanding the criminal legal system at all. It wasn't about justice, and it wasn't about rehabilitation, and in fact, it wasn't even about crime. The criminal legal system is and was a stopgap, a drain for every other broken system we actually have in this country. All the systems of care that we refuse to fund from healthcare to welfare to public housing to education to job training. All of those systems, which are actually broken and underfunded in this country, uh, abandon people. They, they leave them without the things they need to survive. And thus, the prison exists to scoop them all up, to put them somewhere. And because queer people who are often abandoned and without care because our country sees care as the thing that should come from the nuclear family, which so often pushes queer people out, queer people are always going to end up in need of care. And so abolition emerged for me as a really important framework to make sense of what I was seeing and why the prison system was able to function the way it was. And of course, I came to that from folks in the prison themselves, Angela Davis being really the first one who was incarcerated in the House of D, but who really reading her autobiography and reading all of her other work after that really drove home to me what abolition truly was and why it's the floor for fixing our problems, not the ceiling. We, we have to start there because everything else is broken. And this is the linchpin that allows it to remain broken. So that's why abolition became such an important frame for me. And the connections to today became so important because I think what we get with reform, a lot of times, liberal reforms, is things become on the surface better. They become more fair in the sense that it is harder to point to a specific law or moment of exclusion. But the system itself is still doing what it was doing, right? And so it becomes harder and harder for us to see the ways in which the system is odious and focused on queer people because we have stripped out the language and the specific provisions that made it visible because those were protested against. So by making these connections between the ways in which all of these things are still operative today, I thought it would help for people to see that the system may have changed in certain small ways. It may have been tinkered with around the edges and it may have a sort of kinder, gentler face. But underneath, it's still the same. And it is still criminalizing queer people, which is why 40% of people in women's prisons and 40% of people in detention centers for girls identify as LBTQ. Yeah, those statistics are remarkable and alarming. That makes a lot of sense. I, I love how you put it in terms of abolition as a framework to, to from which to analyze the situation. Um, I'm going to continue thinking about that for sure. Yeah, they were really the only people whose analysis made sense. Every other analysis, just if you looked at it in a long enough historical frame, fell apart. Right. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Hugh, I don't want to take up too much of your time. So I wanted to ask one final question um, for our listeners so that they can be more in tune with your amazing work. And um, hopefully everybody will pick up a copy of the Women's House of Detention and read it. But I wanted to know what you're working on now. Right now, I am working on Gay Sloth Month, where I sleep a lot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. I'm I love that. And I wish you <laughs> the best with, all, with that. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I think that, though, honestly, my next project is going to be a look at 
the Lower East Side, uh, particularly post-World War II through the like dawn of the 2000s, um, and trying to analyze why it created the kind of social space that allowed for artistic and political experimentation ranging from like the avant-garde new lesbian theater of um, the wow cafe to the like political analysis of the latino folks who were involved with the real great society like what was it about that neighborhood that allowed both of these things to flourish there and so much more I'm always interested in looking at queer life through an urban studies lens. Mm, mm. I agree. I agree. I I wish we had more time to talk about that, but <laughs> um, that's really fascinating. Lower East Side. Well, I I look forward to following you and your work and reading that next that next book eventually, which I'm sure will be published before I finish my PhD. Seeing <laughs> oh, <I don't laughs> how quick that, but... how quick you work, which is also <laughs> admirable. Um, well, thank you so much. This was a really fabulous conversation, and you know how much I respect your scholarship, and I'm so excited to see what your work comes with. And I just love being in conversation because I think the work you're doing is so important. And I like that you're putting my work in conversation with your work and with trans and carceral histories generally. Thank you. Thank you. And absolutely, I I look forward to citing your work many, many times in my dissertation. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much. Um, And I'll stop the recording.